We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What do you think about the Laker team now? You follow the box scores of the games every day? Just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Pete, joined by Mike. It's a travel day for Darius, so he won't be with us today. But we are joined by a, a special guest. Um, one of the things that I love about basketball is how much it changes based on the perspective that you're looking at it. It's fascinating, you know, from a bird's eye view, but it's it's also fascinating up close, and it's fascinating in, in a completely different way than it is from that bird's eye view. And zoomed in like that is where we're going to spend a lot of this episode, specifically focused on the details of Taylor Horton Tucker's game. And as I said, we have a special guest to help us do that. His name is P.D. Webb. And in my view, he's doing some of the very best work in basketball media right now, focusing on the micro skills of players. In other sports, you know, we focus on this is how this guy throws, like pitching ninja, right? Like this is how this guy throws his split finger fastball versus his two-seam fastball in Football, you know, you watch football, they're talking about the technique of cornerbacks and how they navigate a pick route, all things like that. We don't do that nearly as much in basketball. PD does that work and is doing really important work on that front. Thank you so much for joining us, PD. Great to have you on the show. Wow, uh, what an introduction. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk about to talk about Taylor, to talk about uh, how much fun he is as a basketball player and also talk about like what the youngest player on who's going to play real minutes on this team looks like. For sure. And to do that, I asked you, you know, I've been, God, man, I've been trying to get you on the show for ages, but we keep trying to, we keep trading our picks and you kind of deal more in the realm of, you know, college players and young players and player development. So I was like, Hey, let's talk THT. And so I asked you to just give your time and attention to his game and do the work that you do with him. And so let's, let's start with his driving game. For me, that is the foundation of a lot of my hopes and dreams for what THT might be able to be. What did you see when he focused on that aspect of his game? I mean, the first thing that that stands out about THT is that he gets to the rim like at an insane volume for the position he plays. I mean, uh, cleaning the glass uh, categorized him as a combo guard, and his fifty three percent of his shots were rim attempts, good for the 99th percentile 
of, uh, of all players in the archetype. And I mean, I think that that is where all of his game flows from is the ability to get downhill, um, the ability to to create rotations and create angles for his finishing. Um, you know, he's he's a really weird guy to watch because uh, at, at times you wonder how he's not like a star, like immediately just because of, of his combination of, of uh, tools and craft. And then other times you watch him and like he can really struggle to get to those moments when he doesn't have the ability to create advantage. So I think that for a Lakers team that needs um, him to, to fill a certain type of role, this is going to be a really interesting developmental year um, because, you know, the, the creation pathway that he had uh, as a, you know, a, a second year player isn't necessarily available with, with Russ and, you know, the, a, a even more uh, intense vet turn uh, going to take more usage away. But even outside of the surrounding context, like that 99th percentile of getting to the rim, that is, so unusual for a player his age. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on like, what does he do? What do you, when you watch him drive to the rim, what are some of the moves that he uses? What is, what is some of the uh, approach that he takes that, that leads to that? Now there are certain decisions out of that that don't always work out and that he needs to work on for sure. But how do you get to a 99th percentile at getting to the rim at age 20? I mean, I think it's, it's the combination of how big he is, um, how long his wingspan is and his ability to use pace in, in conjunction with those things. So like a lot of uh, guys who are like stop and start athletes don't have this insane, insane wingspan. Um, you kind of see this with a little bit with, uh, with Shea Gildas Alexander, but Shea is really skinny and Shea can't bump you off spots. THT has the option to bump people off spots. Um, you know, it, the combination of, of stride steps to bump people, you know, come to a full stop while a defender is sliding. He has this beautiful bump euro where you go from one shoulder to the other, making a whole bunch of contact. I, I watched him throw Anthony Edwards to the ground with one of those. Um, and Ant is also not a small human being. And and those moves are like space clearers, right? It's yep. a way of getting guys off of you. Yeah. And then I think the biggest difference from him as a, a rookie to a, uh, a, to, a, to a second year player is how efficient he was with his strides. Um, you know, he really paid attention to, to dribble craft, to picking up the ball and stealing a step. You know, in the NBA, you get sort of two and a half steps, sometimes three, depending on when you, when you time the, the end of uh, the discontinuation of the dribble. And I thought that he made huge strides in getting more out of that um, with with his dribble pickups into his euros, his ability to freeze bigs with that. And that, you know, kind of that balances out his inability to finish like simply everything for him is a is an inside hand finish or an extension. You very rarely see him, you know, in the half court go over the top of people, which you'd sort of expect for a guy with as big of a wingspan who has, you know, fluidity and, and explosiveness. But he needs those sort of angles to to score. And I think that's what you see the difference between like 48 percent finishing at the rim and 99th percentile getting there. Like that's where the dissonance is. And that's also where I think the, the clear improvement needs to be. That's a good point. If you think about THT when he's driving and what he's doing with his footwork and then where the ball is. Right. Like he's usually starting out further than a typical player might who's going to go and finish. And they're, like there's still another move coming, and there's another shoulder dip or another feint or another step coming once he gets into his action. And, and that's some combination of his physical skills and just the, the way that he sees the game, PD. But did you, like, did you see that evolve from the G League? And even going back to, you know, going back to Iowa State, but to the end of last season, did you, did you see a growth process there that you think carries over and leads him to some kind of a next step for this season? Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, I've watched THT since he was in high school. 
Um, and there's a really clear, uh, like he knows what he's doing more now. T- he makes less moves for moves sake or times where he like has an extra spin or, you know, he, he wants to set somebody up for something and like, there's still like a floater open. I think that he does a much better, he's gotten so much better at understanding where his advantages are and identifying them and identifying the move that needs to happen in that specific circumstance. Um, he's always a guy who's had like a, a really deep bag of options. And as a young player that can, you can kind of fall in love with that. Um, you guys are familiar with the D'Angelo Russell experience. Where, <laughs> That's right. You know, you have a lot of stuff. It's just like, well, some of the stuff you have doesn't work in every context. And I think that just pairing up the move to the moment better is the thing that that uh, has been the biggest adjustment, um, especially from from the G League, uh, where he started to, I think, focus more on winning simply um, and using moves when he had to versus just being able to get them off. Yeah, there's a certain degree of that that comes with experience, right? Knowing what tool the root use in which situation. I thought your observation about not finishing simply is a particularly interesting one that I think is the missing chain in the link of him being really elite at at uh, driving to the rim and kind of bringing together that 99th percentile at driving to the rim, but 48th percentile at, at finishing. His I think of basketball and driving to the rim uh, specifically from the perspective of like a horizontal plane and a vertical plane. And so I think he's elite already as a young player at using the horizontal plane. You talked about uh, varying the length of his strides when he's got a great long step that he'll kind of use into a, a hesitation move that there's a lot of start starting and stopping mm-hmm. and changing speeds that when combined with his strength, as you pointed out, that's just really tough to guard. You get a, a little bit out of position. You get bumped off your spot when you get a little shoulder from him into you. So I'm I'm really excited about that. The vertical over the top stuff is blurrier to me. He's not a guy that like he doesn't have a natural floater game. I'm curious about your thoughts on his basically his ability to score over the top more efficiently and his counters when teams start to, you know, seal off those that horizontal plane more, you know, they dedicate more resources to preventing him from squeezing into those those spaces and getting into those unorthodox finishes. What can he do to finish over the top better and what can he rely on as a counter to his drives? I think that being around Russ is really effective with this. Like Russ has a ton of finishing craft. He's just very oh, specific about mm-hmm. he is very specific about where he does it. Like he, you'll very rarely see Russ pick the wrong move in terms of, of like final steps in craft. And uh, a thing that Russ has, has gotten really good at is trying to win as simple as possible. Um, you know, getting enough craft to, to be able to have options. But when like there's a, a, a plain option, whether it's a running hook, um, whether it's like a, you know, a, a full extension straight up, whether it is simply just going up strong, knowing you will get fouled. Um, which is, I think, a, a very clear area where THD can improve, is that at times when you overcraft, it kills your foul rate. Um, because, you know, if, if you get hit and you cannot finish, a ref is more likely to blow the whistle. But if you can, you know, gather and sort of cup it and, and go to an inside hand, ref is generally going to be like, yeah, it's not a foul. You know, bigger guys obviously have a... Uh, it's harder to call fouls against them. Um, this is a, a thing that Braun has had issues with for basically mm-hmm. his whole career. Is like, dudes get to tee off on me, and if I touch one of these skinny dudes, it's automatically a foul. <laughs> That's um, right. And uh, it... it you know, uh, and if you've ever seen a guard defend a big in a post up, they're just getting uh, MMA moves, not a foul. But if the inverse were to happen, <laughs> that's right. Um, so I, I think that for him, it's just recognizing that he has, like, he doesn't necessarily have to become like a nuts athlete to go over the top. It's just to recognize where those windows are and just to push, you know, for him to get full extensions on the vertical plane 
as finishes, which times you see with like finger rolls, but I think he can go above the square as well. Mm-hmm. Um, will open up more for the horizontal stuff to work. I think that the most difficult coverage types of guys for him were like the Acapertal types who mm-hmm. could just stay on the ground and sort of be patient. And yeah. the guys that he was more successful with were the ones where he could alter their hip height. So like, you know, the Bismack Biombos of the world where they, they would want to spring up and then, you know, you have a little bit of a bump and then he could find a finishing angle. But when more ground bound centers, the ones who are also technicians were the guys that in, in the, in my watching of THD, both historically and, you know, in the, in the last, you know, couple of days uh, are the ones that stuck out as like, Oh, if you just went strong, some of these are easy layups or easy fouls, but you, decided you committed to the idea of you were going to have a, a crafty finish instead of just taking you know uh, something that was probably just through a defender pd i want to ask you something about his shooting and kind of what you've seen in the, the development there and sometimes when pete and i are talking about this and certainly with darius guys that didn't have to shoot to be super effective and win a bunch of state titles uh, for example mm-hmm. um in high school and then even at the college level like we talked about how great THC is at getting to the rim. So he kind of like other, other players that are so proficient at getting to the rim, whether it's their size, their strength, whatever, that don't need that jump shot as much. Have you seen now that he, it's clear that defenses are going to play him a certain way at the NBA where yes, he can get to the bucket, but he's going to have this diet of wide open shots or at least relatively open given what his teammates are. Do you see a growth curve there? And have you seen that be like part of the reason why the jump shot isn't where it is uh, today because he hasn't had it? Like how, how can you clean all that up together? That mess of a question, PD, for me. Oh, I mean, I, I think that uh, you are exactly where I am. Um, and it's that THT has up until basically this moment of his life been an on-ball player. And when you watch him shoot, he shoots like a guy who has dribbled into basically every jumper of his entire life. And when he is off-ball, he doesn't have rhythm because he's used to dribbling into, you know, dedicated footworks and, and having the dribble determine the rhythm. And if you just watch all of his shots, like the difference in, in how like the timing of the jumper in the energy flow and how far he jumps on catch and shoots versus uh, the stuff off the dribble, it's night and day. Um, and it's I don't think it's a coincidence that the areas that he shoots best are the ones where he's shot historically, you know, the wings um, just, you know, as a guy and the worst places he shoots the worst are the corners, which is like if you're a creator, you never take corner jumpers. Like PD and Pete, real quick, real quick. The game was the game winner. Was that against the Knicks? That That's he, right. Is, mm-hmm. and it was, wasn't it like sort of semi off the dribble? Like it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. it absolutely was. And that's was what, like kind that's of more to his left. Yeah, 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 yeah. His, his pull up three is fine ish like it's below average but he's like i'm right there with you man he's just a lot more comfortable on that shot than those catch and shoots yeah and and i think that it's not just a matter of like being intellectually comfortable being asked to do new things i think it's a matter of physical comfort like oh interesting what what do you how how would you be physically uncomfortable in those situations so i mean the the underlying principle here is something that we call self-organization um, so like if you've ever, uh, been at a club and the DJ turned, changed music into a tempo you're unfamiliar with. Now you're speaking Pete's language, PD, getting into the club. Okay. Like Pete, Pete has been you in all me. the clubs. Yeah. You know me. Yep. So when you go from like a, a 100 beats per minute to like a 130, you look around the club, there's going to be some people who are suddenly off tempo. Yep. Yep. And that is essentially what we're talking about on the difference between catch and shoot jumpers and uh, off the dribble jumpers is that like one of those is at a, a different tempo. It's at a different comfort level. And you can just see that like they do not look the same. The timing is not the same. The energy transfer from, you know, the toes up to the hand are, are not the same. Um, and 
that's going to take time. Um, I think that there's not that much that's mechanically wrong with his upper body. Um, at times, I think he over dips to try to compensate for this uh, rhythm issue. Um, and just uh, in time, I think that they'll they'll uh, shave down the amount that he dips um, as he gathers. But the lower body seems to be where like 80% of his misses are um, in, in the ones that I've watched and, and just looking at, at historically how he shot on catch and shoots. PD, the club expert and the dancing expert on this podcast is Darius. So we'll have to mm-hmm. get his his thoughts on that later. But I definitely get the drift. And, and that was actually kind of a fun way to describe it. The, the last thing that I had about the shooting is that it's a little bit similar for a guy that can that can get to the rim and therefore doesn't need the jumper as much. And so all of that makes sense. But in terms of when you've got these clear three big time players that, you know, the two stars and then Russ comes in. His role, like how how is all of this going to play out in a bit of the way that it did for Kuzma, where the stuff that he's best at, like it's you still want that, but you do need him to evolve more into these role player areas. And so how does that stuff continue to evolve when you still want him to have the ball in his hands at times and to be able to go get to the bucket when they brought in Russell Westbrook instead of, say, like the whole Kings rumored trade, right? Where mm-hmm. that may have made it, they may have then needed his ball handling a little bit more off the bench than they might this season. I think that being guard sized, uh, you know, guard wing sized versus Kuzma, who's like four size, does help a little bit um, in that you can deploy him in a lot of different ways. Um, Kuzma just sort of suffered, I, I think, ultimately from a problem being the same size as Braun. Um, and that creates uh, redundancies and, and you know, uh, it's difficult to deploy both of them in probably their optimal context at the same time. Um, I think that with THT, it's easier to get the things that he's comfortable with within the flow of the offense for the other three guys. Um, even like Westbrook, you can run actions where you get Westbrook in motion and then run THT in motion on the second side. Um, and you know, replicate some of the advantage that he would be able to, to create if he were the primary creator. You're still going to have, uh, like, spacing concerns at times, um, especially as he, like, reps out the, the changes in his jumper. And, you know, from the stuff I've seen, obviously taking uh, grains of salt for, for practice jumpers. The lower body looks smoother. I'm not going to say he turns into prime Ray Allen or, you know, even, like, a Carmelo above the break. But a lot of the issues seem to have been addressed I don't know if they're solved, but like there's certainly a, a an awareness of, of what the, the problem seems to be, which is not guaranteed. And, uh, you know, considering where the Lakers have been historically with their development staff, um, it's really wonderful to have a staff that now like does the right adjustments with guys jumper and just like with the uh, appropriate development. So I think that, you know, getting him in, in, in on getting him in movement. I mean, I think that his cutting is a thing that is going to hold together a lot of his lineups uh, with him and Russ and then probably him and AD um, where his on-ball usage will will slide as needed. But for him, it's going to be keeping him in movement, not necessarily relegating him to a corner and trying to get more of a, a, uh, like pin downs for him, getting him into, you know, Chicago actions. I think there's a lot of ways to still leverage that without needing him to dribble, you know, 200 times in a game, but still having, you know, a creation role. Yeah, Chicago actions, uh, if you're listening, are like handoff actions, right? Get, yeah. get the ball to THT on the move, get him going to the rim. Uh, you know, a lot of opportunities for success. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep getting into THT's micro skills. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So, PD, I thought you had an interesting observation about Talon kind of selecting the wrong move and kind of outcrafting himself and reducing his free throw rate. But it's all based around decisions, right? And these are very quick in the moment decisions. But am I going to go to this move or am I going to go to that move? And sometimes he doesn't make the correct decision. On those drives, I see that in his passing as well. Yes. I'm I'm very bullish on his ability to finish around the rim and he developed some counters like he had a little turnaround jumper that he didn't have at the beginning of the year but he'd drive and it's different than the, like the floater or some of the other like counters that that drivers use when the defense collapses into the paint but he you know drive to the rim plant that foot reverse pivot hit that little jumper I, I feel pretty good about that. But the decision-making stuff, which we see in both the shot attempts and the kickouts, that's something that on one hand, he's young, right? That's, that's an area where players make that decision better as time goes on. But the path to that is blurrier for me. In your eyes and in your experience, how does a player get better at making those reads on those driving kicks? And what is Talon missing? What does he need to do to get there? Yeah, so now we're, now we're in the heart of it. I think that that Talon is is a really uh, fascinating uh, creation prospect because he makes really high level reads, but he struggles with what I would say are the more basic ones. So he is very capable of identifying like uh, a complex advantage situation where like there is a clear advantage. There's a little there's a person has helped off too far. He will pick out advanced passes and he's capable of hitting people in stride. And I think that that's what got people really excited about him and uh, potentially like overhyped his ability to be a creator. It's also why you see him like miss pocket passes is that like it's a it's a partial advantage. He's not always keyed in on on like winning in degrees. Instead, he he seems to hunt like larger advantages, um, which, again, makes sense if you've been a guy who's been overloaded on and, and had three and four defenders thrown at you for high school and AAU and and uh, and at Iowa State to, to a degree. Um, and especially in the G League, he got a great deal of overloads there. Um, where like partial advantage creation doesn't really help. Unfortunately, on this team, he needs to get better at identifying and and hunting those small moments um, because it's going to keep teams in rotation and keeping teams uh, in rotation uh, when you have a team with LeBron and Anthony Davis um, almost always results in good things. Um, so I think that that process is is celebrating and and uh, actively courting small wins rather than looking for the moments where you know he drives, he double clutches, he. He forces a, a defender to, to help down onto 80 and kicks out to the corner. That's something we know he can do. But getting a directly in-time pocket pass 
versus the versus like a drop coverage every like every time for a two minute stretch is a much larger victory and one that bodes better than any like I don't want to say highlight pass, but like I want to see him not need to manipulate a defense. I want to see, see just like these automatic reads quicker and to process them uh, in, in the larger scheme of things uh, more automatically. A lot of the construct of this year's Lakers team, I think, is built around the idea of winning scramble situations. So both creating them with, you know, a Russell Westbrook, a LeBron James, Anthony Davis, guys who can break down a defense. THT, if he's your fourth best guy on your team doing that with a Kendrick Nunn as well, who can do it in different ways. Like that's a lot of, you know, ability in that respect. So with respect to those scramble situations, there's a lot of simple reads that come out of that, but it is more playing by principle and by instinct than it is, um, than it is trying to make those higher level reads, uh, you know, in, in a half court situation. I'm curious your thoughts of on THT in those situations where he's attacking closeouts, where he's in transition or semi-transition or there's the defense is otherwise broken down or begun to be broken down by somebody else. What can Taylor do in those circumstances where he's not the person that's responsible for breaking it down, but responsible for attacking it? So, you know, in, in, I guess the, the draft scouting community, we call that with playing with advantage. Like you're kind of playing 4.5 on five with you, yes. with, with the Lakers having the five. And like, this is in a lot of ways where he is best. He's best playing it uh, off defenses in rotation. You know, they're scrambling. They're they're trying to to figure out how to catch up and he can improvise. And I think that this plays to a lot of his strengths and covers up, you know, his weaknesses with making the lower level. We consider like automatic reads um, because he's that's where he he can recognize that, oh, this defender's helping a little bit too much. Let me stare. You know, let me stare, fake the lob, then, you know, overhead pass to the corner. Um, this is where you get a lot of the the on ball defenders trying to, to panic and and get in front of him and that's where you get the double pivots the little up and unders the, the craft stuff that goes so well so i think the theory of this team works really well for what Taylor is going to be it's just bridging the gap from like trying to get what's more like year four or five Taylor horton tucker in year three um because like that's going to happen it's just a matter of if it helps this specific lakers team you know and that's the way too that i'm i'm trying to think about what his optimized role is where his minutes are what lineups that he goes into. And it's a little bit tricky. If, so if you look at the starting guards right now, we know one's going to be Russ. We've gone back and forth. Like once the whole, the news about DeAndre Jordan came, then we thought, well, maybe that would portend that Ellington would have a better chance to start mm-hmm. just to lock in that shooting before we thought maybe Baysmore, depending on defensive ceiling. But then if you've got Kendrick Nunn coming off the bench, now you've got Rondo. You've got sort of the unknown, at least to an extent, in Malik Monk, where Pete and I and Darius have spent a lot of time already thinking about where THT fits in. And is he the guy that you're, he's getting X amount of minutes off the bench, period, because we want to see this development and he does some things that nobody else does. Or since he doesn't have that complementary role stuff that we've discussed a little bit on here to the same extent as some of those other players, you know, Maybe there are still nights where the 20-year-old, soon to be in a couple of months, 21-year-old THT, um, isn't getting the kind of minutes that you would like to see for his development. So I just wonder, PD, where you see all that fitting in, uh, at least to start the season, and we'll see where things evolve. Yeah, I think that there is a natural concern about how he should be best developed. And I would kind of, uh, the way that I've looked at this season is sort of thinking about 
splitting two versions of like imagining Taylor Horton Tucker as two players and both of them need developmental minutes. The the first one is the Taylor Horton Tucker, who is a creator, Mm -hmm. um, who is, you know, who is going to be on the, you know, the 2024, 2025 version of this team and is going to be valuable there. And the other version is the one that can do things right now. And the one that is going to need to offer playoff minutes in uh, in this season and to be a positive player, not like a theoretical, oh, this is going to be fun later, like a guy who deserves to be on the floor when things matter. And that you can look at his lineups as which version is uh, which version of Taylor Horton Tucker is this lineup helping and what is the split up of those minutes? So, you know, how much you play him with Rondo, like to me, him and Malik Monk are like, uh, I would say a, a fairly optimal pairing. Um, him and Bazemore are, I think, like if you were to put the three of them together, would be a very interesting lineup, especially if you you package that with with one of the stars. Um, I think AD is, is probably the more natural one there. Um, I think that you can get to a lot of uh, places that that service both of those ideas, but I, I think that development takes many forms, especially for a player who is essentially on two different timelines at once. And that if you try to look at it holistically, you can run into problems of like, is he being developed? And instead wondering which timeline does this line up or which timeline does this amount of playing time service? Because there's going to be nights where like him as the creator probably shouldn't play. Uh, so like if it's a if it's a bigger opponent or, or a matchup that they don't think that he's going to create in the playoffs versus. And then if it's, you know, a, a worse team, like, yeah, like throw him all the usage. And then, there you know, there may be even be some nights where we'll see, like there were some nights where Russ last year sat back to backs or at least the the second game or one of the two right and then on those nights then you are going to need some more creation right and some some of that from yeah. THT so there yep. and who knows we'll see you know even if LeBron let's knock on wood right that it, maybe if he only misses you know four or five games for similar reasons those are nights right where you where you really need more of that THT but there are going to be plenty of nights against the good teams where you're just needing sort of the you know the floor spacing and getting the defensive rotation right and that might come more from a Bazemore or an Ellington than from a THC. And yeah. ultimately, all of this is coming back from like that is great. If he's able to do that and, and produce in those circumstances, that would be fantastic. But everything about this year is reverse engineered from the idea of trying to win an NBA championship and being able, being appropriate on the floor, being able to contribute in those games that matter is I would argue more product of what he does on the other end of the floor. And so I want to shift our focus to that end PD. And I think the Lakers defensively have made massive changes, especially on the perimeter and his role. I think I suspect he's going to play a little more three. And I think that he'll probably have some more point of attack defense in his responsibilities this year. So I'm curious what you see from him on the defensive end, specifically on the ball at the point of attack. Can I start by asking just like kind of a a dumb question, which is like when you say point of attack, do you mean like do you think that he guards spends more time guarding like guard size players or wing size players? This coming year, I think it's going to be more wing size players. This is all again theoretical. I could, mm-hmm. if you yeah, want to yeah, be if you want to be general and touch on both whichever direction you want to go in, I suspect based on the roster, based on you know his his development, our needs, I suspect he's more on two threes this year than one twos. So I think that the word that that comes or the phrase that I keep coming back to with with THT is defensively is promising but immature. And I think that he's a much more mature offensive player than he is a defensive player in how, he, pro- than in how he processes things. Like, mm-hmm. I don't I think that there is there are elements of craft on defense that are that are inspiring and that he has the like the tools and, and 
uh, presents just like a a physical oddity. Like there's just not dudes who are built like that who are also you know huge. Like when then you add in the movement skills. Like yeah, PJ Tucker is sort of built the same, but like PJ does not move like that. Like PJ moves like a dude who lifts weights. THT moves, <laughs> you know, uh, like like a dude who if you had to if you were just like you know shown the mocap, you'd be like yeah, this is like a, a Shea Gilgis Alexander like skinny dude. It's like no, he uh, much he smoother. Like a yeah. That's right. <laughs> Um, so I think that the, that like when I say immaturity, what I mean is that I don't think Taylor Norton Tucker has the same picture of what good defense is, um, in, in like the, the broad strokes as the vets do. And that I think that the way that he thinks about defense is, is about havoc and about, uh, events creation. So steals, blocks, uh, deflections, um, you know, just trying to, to make something happen and, as a vet in the playoffs, the things that are like what good defense is, is that offense that isn't allowed to happen. It's, you know, it's possessions where like, you know, you get to 20, you get, you do, you reel up 22 seconds of, of basically nothing happened and somebody has to force a shot. That's the ideal defensive possession. Um, you know, it's replicable. There's only so many steals you get in a game. There's only so many deflections you'll get in a game. But if you can rotate perfectly every single time, like that is good defense. And I think that THT is still in the idea of like, awesome defense which is you know ripping somebody or, or you know flustering their handle so bad that, that you know that they dribble the ball off their foot and so much of his style is just built on trying to make stuff happen and especially with vets that is going to be a problem if he doesn't learn how to dial it back while still getting results because there are like he can do those things very well he just does not pick his spots with them so he's trying to like pressure damian lillard's handle like it's a bulletproof handle. It's not really going to work. And everything is sort of a, you know, whether it's a blow by, whether it's, you know, him flipping his feet, there are, everything is a, is an offer from the the overall philosophy of decision making of like, let me make something happen. Instead of being like, I'm going to push Dame to his right. I want him to take a sidestep. If he takes a sidestep after three dribbles, that's a win. Like, yeah, he's going to shoot a number. That's it's Dane. You're never going to shut him down. You're not going to, you know, um, you're not going to be able to, to like put a lid on him unless, you know, you're Drew Holiday for one playoff series. Um, but bringing to his length to bear is more things than just blocks and steals. And it's just like being a general presence versus always creating an event. And that is the, I think more than anything, that is the, the mentality shift and the approach shift that would allow him to be like extremely valuable in the playoffs this year. So the mentality shift is a good, is an interesting phrase right there. Thinking about not just THT, but I'm to try to put this in the context of what the Lakers did and how they won the title and all those possessions in which they forced the other, the opponent to either throw the ball away with 20, with two seconds on the shot clock left or whatever, it, because of a guy like a Caruso who, played that way defensively for many years. Like that was part of his DNA. If you go back and watch, I haven't seen a lot of Caruso high school tape or AAU tape uh, or even at AM, but like I'm guessing that you're going to see a lot of that type of Alex Caruso play on the, de- the t- defensive side of the court. If you watch the THG film, which you've watched, PD, and, and now I feel like I'm putting words in your mouth, but I'm guessing you watch a Simeon uh, Career Academy possession and it's THG with the ball right? Breaking his guy off the dribble and getting into the paint and dunking. And then on the other end, maybe going for a rip steal 
you know, like the same thing that you just talked about. So the mentality and the mindset stuff that Kuzma to bring now another former Laker into this had to go through these last couple of years, that takes time. It's not going to change from last season to this season. It's just not. And and so I, I am not trying to put these types of defensive expectations on THT for this year, even if he can get a little bit better. We're talking about years and years of the way that somebody sees the game and what their role is to do it. And Pete, that's where I'm trying to square, right? How mm-hmm. much that if I if I'm not expecting that much of a gap or to mm-hmm. be filled, then how can how can that evolve enough for him to be on the floor in key situations this year? I think the best place for that to happen is when we're switching. And I think that's what he's most equipped to contribute to now defensively. And there is a certain brand of Lakers defense we will see because the personnel is so different. But when we were at our best, we were a high volume forcing turnovers, blitzing on, you know, putting two on the ball, having guys zone up on the weak side. And that's where you use Anthony Davis to guard two on the weak side. And Mm -hmm. he's going to be able to guard two. LeBron is capable of doing this too. Russell Westbrook, when you were describing THT PD in his style of defense, you could have been describing Russell Westbrook on, on some level, right? It's not a perfect one-to-one comparison, yeah. but that guy that's able to switch and wreak havoc, kind of play free safety, at, you know, at intercept passes, get deflections, maybe not the most technically sound defender, but is, you know, when you're in a group that is trying to wreak ha- havoc, I think that when you've got LeBron and AD and, and Russ and THT, it all points toward this kind of switchy, blitzy, aggressive defense. That's where I'm most bullish on THT defensively. I'm curious how you see him through that lens. I mean, you guys have, have uh, it's like you've read my notes or something because you've touched on, on two things that I really wanted to bring up. And that's that's uh, Diggs specifically and Caruso and, and sort of like uh, talking about how the the differences in the two and how you can get how you can sort of bridge that gap as a style. It, real quick, PD, explain what digs are for our listeners. Okay, yeah, digs are when you help off your man toward, towards a ball handler, usually one or two steps away from your help assignment. The thing about THT that that happens right now is that he will leave his area to dig, and if if the dig doesn't work, the defense is now compromised because he has altered his closeout angle, and mm-hmm. you know these where players are positioned in sort of help side is sort of an architecture where you're trying to push the ball handler. If you know, there's a closeout into the least threatening position possible. One right. where there's help over top. That's where, you know, you, that's where you see, you know, these players sort of appear out of nowhere to punch things. And you're like, how did they do that? It's like, well, it's this, it's the schematic to build just enough of a half and enough of a half second that Anthony Davis can one step over and pin something to the backboard. And when you watch Caruso, he will dig, but he's always digging with that architecture in mind. So when he does close out, he's still able to enforce the overall help scheme. He can roam from his position and still be enforcing, you know, those help side angles. And with THT, it basically creates a pass or fail state. Or if he gets the dig or disrupts it, then, you know, that's a good possession. But if he fails, you could basically, and the rest of the possession can be, blown over just like the lightest nudge because you've removed a critical support beam. So I think that it's not going to take much. It's just retaining the discipline when you're digging to not, you know, go all out on the ball handler, not to try to disrupt them. It's that you also have as equally important is, you know, closing out. And it's why his, uh, his closeout numbers are so bad and so voluminous. Um, I believe uh, his largest defensive uh, play type is, is catch and shoot jumpers. Um, uh, And, they people shot almost like one point per possession on it. It's because he digs so far and, and so hard out. And I think even worse is the ones that aren't on him. 
it's you know that he misses one it's you know two dribbles somebody has to help up help you know dump off comes now you have a whole bunch of people pointing to each other like that was your man that was your man it was like no it's that a 20 a 19 year old didn't right. really understand the bigger picture and helped a little bit too far off and altered the angles and i think that it's not particularly sexy to be like yeah let's watch dig angles compared to, to alex caruso but like those are the things that separate a good team from yes. a championship team is the ability yes. to create havoc while maintaining scheme and that's that is the the intersection that THT is currently at. I, I would also argue that that's super important on this particular team. My biggest concern about the roster overall is perimeter defense and just kind of a, you know, that we've got that older roster. And that is there are some guys where we're going to have to be sharp in our defensive rotations because maybe we don't have the foot speed to, that, to be able to get there. The younger guys who are capable athletically, especially with his length, maintaining that architecture, I'm going to steal that term from you and use that going forward him not compromising that architecture and then putting slower older guys into rotation i think is going to be really important to our defense going forward before we wrap up are there any anything that we haven't covered that you want to cover about tht yeah i mean i don't mean to say that like i i think there's a way of it's sort of just natural when you get into the weeds it's like it feels like you're you're being you know tougher on a guy where in reality it's just you know we're just far enough in the weeds that you know we're talking about where people are currently like this isn't i'm not by any means low on tht it's it's that like this is the difference like the the bar to clear for young players on a championship team is so high especially for these really high leverage situations um those are the things that that i'm most interested in from him you know the shooting is nice um obviously you know getting that smoothed out is important but things like how many times can he kill advantage as the help side guy on a closeout again a thing that caruso was like otherworldly at was that a team would swing out, you know, they'd get two feet in the paint, they'd, there'd be a swing, Caruso would close out perfectly on balance, and suddenly, like, you, you could hear a pin drop. The, the Just absolute nothing on this possession. That's and, right. It's a record scratch where everything, yeah. it's like in a movie where, they're, you know, you walk into that room and, you know, like, yeah, that, that possession, that adv- advantage is now erased. Yeah, and in the NBA, uh, I mean, this is a sort of a thing I say a lot about younger prospects who have low feel, is that, like, there's no guarantee you get second advantage on any NBA possession. It it frequently if you if you can kill one you're most likely getting a stop or force a really tough shot and and uh and those are really tough shoes to fill because caruso that caruso got paid partially because of that particular micro skill the ability to reduce or even stop advantage on closeouts and uh again for a 25 year old for a kent bazemore that's a difficult skill to get for a 20 year old who who's like real ceiling is as a creator we're talking about like things that really are totally foreign to him. So I think that anything can help and, and that like a lot of his instincts in terms of disrupting passing lanes, I feel like he has a really good understanding of, of where passing lanes are and, and where to put his hands. Uh, a lot of his deflections uh, and steals are actually like him being in the wrong spot. Uh, and then he just like puts his arm up because that's where he thinks the pass should be and he gets it. And it's like, okay, so yes, you have a huge margin for error and it, a lot of times <laughs> you, you, you use it, but the understanding is there that like if he even gets to like 50% of what Caruso can do, that's a meaningful havoc defender within the scheme. And I don't, I think that because of his margin for error and because of the natural like movement skills that he has on defense, he doesn't have to become all world at it. Like uh, Caruso is obviously a phenomenal athlete, especially, you know, in closeout situations, but like, there just aren't dudes with like plus 10 wingspans walking around. And that makes life so much easier. And it also means that like the on-ramp onto that is a lot easier. So it's not that I'm I'm negative on on THC in any sense. I feel like in a lot of ways I'm 
Uh, I'm more excited about him as a prospect, but I think that it is made really clear that the things that he has to get better at are, are not necessarily what his strengths were as prospects or even where his comfort was as a prospect. All right. Well, I hope everybody uh, heard why I'm such a big PD web fan. PD, tell everybody where they can find your work. Thank you guys so much for having me. Um, it, it, this is one of my favorite things to, to circle back on guys two or three years later and, and, uh, and, you know, see how they've developed, see how, you know, how, where people are, you know, so often, uh, the, the first two years can go like so many, you know, fun ways. And with THT getting thrown into a third different context, you know, uh, is going to be, you know, now as a closeout, uh, specialist and, and a guy who's expected to master scheme, we're going to get some, some really, uh, important insights into, into how development works. You can find me at Twitter and out above the break three. I do uh, long-form prospect breakdowns uh, on Patreon. The work is always free, but it's mostly about how skills develop and how archetype valuation works, um, mostly centered around wings. If you liked a lot of what we're talking about with micro skills on YouTube, I do uh, those same breakdowns. We pick a game from a singular prospect and spend about uh, an hour talking about the micro skills, talking about the situations, me and a guest, usually a a national NBA writer. And the goal is to get people as an on-ramp from you know liking basketball and and maybe wanting to learn more there's it's pretty hard to find places that can on-ramp you um without uh, being weird or mean or you know off-putting and and i guess this is for us uh, we're trying to have a space where like you can have a coaching level perspective but also while trying to to bring along people who maybe are just trying to learn more um we have that for i think there's like 60 of those up and then we went through and did i think 25 hours on summer league handling players four prospects at a time so yeah if that's interest that that's on youtube um i think it's just pd web yt on youtube but if you search let's watch film which is the name of the series that is as where you can find that if you are a team uh, an agent or an organization who like my insights uh i work for a company called cerebro sports that does data insights uh, as well as consulting for every industry level and if any of that sounds interesting holler at your boy thank you again guys for having me so much this is this is a ton of fun Thank you for working to on-ramp people the, the, the way that you do. Tomorrow, we'll be back. To, only got a couple left before the end of the off-season. Uh, but until then, you've been listening to Laker Film Room Podcast. We'll catch you guys next time. James has got it in low to McHale. McHale wants to turn his double team. Just pass out of front, broken up by Worthy. Tip to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. There's Magic, got it. Magic fires. It's good. They will. A lot of Laker fans okay, sticking so around for this. You're seeing something that's very rare indeed. A Laker to get MVP chance right, in, Boston. in Boston. Of all places. Are you kidding me? Kobe. Hard to believe. Are you kidding me? Unreal. Are you kidding me? Lakers looking to push. Bryant spinning in the lane. Back for Gasol. Pretty pass. And it's back to a three-point game. Kobe Bryant picked up by Bell. There's the move. Two. Let's go. Shot clock now to five. Bryant. Yes. And that was a little tough to Alvin Gentry. Add insult to injury, Kobe. I mean, what a shot. I mean, you can't defend that. Are you kidding me? 2.1 seconds remaining. Denver a foul to give. Jokic 
Trying to disrupt Rondo. He puts it in. Here's Davis. 4-3 in the win. Oh, it's good! Anthony Davis has won it for the Lakers! James again. Oh, he hits another one. LeBron James putting together a closing quarter against the Nuggets. This historic 2020 NBA championship belongs to the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers conquer the bubble, and banner number 17 will soon hang in the rafters.